Well, our next guest is, is a doctor doctor. He's an MD and a PhD. He's also a health policy expert with McMaster University, and he's the author of a new piece on theconversation.com entitled, How to Build a Better Canada After COVID-19, Make Telehealth the Primary Way We Deliver Healthcare. Our guest is Dr. Ahmad Faraz Khalid, and joining us on the line from Hamilton. Dr. Khalid Faraz, good morning and welcome. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. We appreciate your joining us. This is a very interesting piece. Uh, we were talking about this in the preamble to the show a few minutes ago. Canada has, uh, out of necessity, Firaz, become, over time, experts in long-distance communication. What with being the second largest country on the planet, with this, relatively speaking, tiny population spread out over enormous land mass, necessity has created, uh, well, uh, masters of communication, long-distance communication. Even during the wars, our, our signal corps were always sought out as being the best at getting the, the word out to the troops. So with all of that history and all of the geographical realities we face on a daily basis, if nothing else, COVID-19 has certainly sharpened the need and the utility of long-distance telehealth, hasn't it? Absolutely. So you, you nailed it there. So from the 1970s, we know that Canada has been an early pioneer when it comes to telehealth. And what really happened over time is that we sort of lagged behind what other countries have been able to do in the technology and advancement of telehealth, being able to provide medical services and healthcare services to our population throughout Canada, uh, and even in times of crises like the COVID-19. And what COVID-19 has done is shown people, uh, patients and policymakers, the benefits of really making sure that our telehealth systems are strengthened and scaled up. Yeah, I agree. I, I, and, and I think also there might, and this is just for your consideration, uh, uh, there also might still have been a percentage of the population unconvinced of the mm-hmm. merits of telehealth. Um, and it's just sort of kind of, well, you know, we're just fooling around with this technology stuff. It may or may not work. It may prove to be useful or not. Uh, so it's sort of sitting on the bubble. Uh, I think that m- the majority of that uh, group has probably not on the bubble anymore. Would you agree? Absolutely. I always bring up the example of my 61-year-old mother, who was never a keen fan of telehealth. She loved personal contact. She wants to see her family doctor. Sure. She would like to talk. Yeah, and so with, with telehealth, what happened during COVID is that she injured her arm, and she needed to see her doctor. And, and I introduced her to telehealth uh, here in, in Toronto, in the Hamilton area, and she was able to get in touch with her family doctor. She was really in the comfort of her own home, she didn't have to like make a trip to her family doctor. And for her, after that experience, she saw the benefits of it. And now she's a converted person. She's very excited about telehealth. She's been telling all her friends of the same age demographic that this is the best thing that has happened. Uh, and so I think that we're going to see an increase in the number of people who actually finally see the benefits of telehealth because they're taking advantage of it. In the past, we've seen those people not being able to take advantage of the system. Uh, in a good way, and so that's why they weren't as uh, they were more reluctant to actually get on board. Well, I, and, and I suppose the other part of the of that equation too for us is the fact that um, the, uh, the it's become so useful. We have a, a friend of, of our program here, a young Vancouver lawyer who uh, was uh, feeling poorly 
and this goes back a couple of months now, and uh, did uh, arrange for a virtual visit uh, and uh, ended up, interestingly, being diagnosed with COVID-19 virtually. Oh, wow. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and so, you know, I mean, in terms of uh, getting to the root of the problem, in her case, uh, this did not take long. She was shocked, frankly, that uh, they, it was able to be uh, diagnosed that specifically based on a virtual visit. But sure enough, there was no, no once, you know, the, the, the dots got connected, there was no question about what was wrong with her. But again, she was just absolutely floored by the fact that she was able to have all of this experience and therefore begin the therapy and, of course, the, the, the quarantine all at home. She didn't leave her house once. Exactly, and that's what telehealth provides. Faster access, timely access to care, but also comfortable care is what I like to call it, which is that we're ensuring that our, our, our patients, uh, the Canadians, are actually getting the service they need in a timely manner and the comfort of their own homes. And as time progresses, and we know that we're going to have an increase in the number of crises that the world will face, mm-hmm. you know, COVID-19 is going to be one of many other crises, unfortunately, that will happen in the near future because of climate change, because of changing in demographics, uh, for many, many different reasons. We really need, we're going to see a heavier emphasis on telehealth and more people asking for that, but also for just for comfort's sake. Uh, you know, it allows you not to have to take a day off from work mm-hmm. uh, and the expenses that are associated with that. Also, the burden that comes with actually making a trip to your family doctor. Absolutely. Now, you talked to us a little bit earlier about how in the 70s, uh, when we were really on a roll in terms of our, mm. our ability to produce, develop, experiment, and implement long-distance communications technology, we were right out there at the tip of the spear. Uh, and this was, of course, the beginning of telehealth. And then subsequent to that, you said that there are other countries that have got past us. In what way have they improved what what they're doing over what we were doing back in the 70s? Well, I mean, I, I give the example of Australia. I think what Australia has done during COVID-19 and before that is that they've already established mobile health clinics, mobile technology, uh, telehealth across their country. And so when COVID-19 did happen, it was very easy for them to quickly switch into telehealth system that has actually been shown now to be extreme, extremely effective. Uh, the case has not really been the same in Canada. It was test and trial for us. So with COVID-19 happening, not all provinces were able to scale up telehealth uh, or, or actually in some areas, it was actually very difficult to implement telehealth. Uh, and now we're seeing that there has been sort of a shift towards making sure that telehealth, there's funding associated with it. Sure. But we also figure out how to support our clinicians in the providing that care because that also requires a very creative way of payment because uh, if a physician in one province is seeing a patient in another province, it makes it a bit difficult for us to figure out billing and how to actually uh, pay, the, pay the physician for that service. Sure. You, you've talked about uh, uh, the, uh, the funding aspect of telehealth because, of course, this is all very experimental. Uh, fortunately, with miniaturization, a lot of the funding doesn't cost as much as some people think it might. However, funding and healthcare matters are typically the, uh, the, the territory of the province. Provinces. Is there a role for the federal government in all of this because uh, of the, uh, the urgent need for connectivity coast to coast? Do the feds have a role here? 
Well, like you said, uh, you know, healthcare delivery is by the provinces. Uh, federal government is only involved with cash contributions to the, to the provinces. So, yes, there could be a role in terms of oversight, uh, in terms of, uh, of encouraging the provinces to really have a, a uniform, uh, standardized telehealth across the country. That's the other big key point. I didn't mention it in my article, but it's something that in us here in the scholarly world between health experts, we always talk about the need for a standardized Canada-wide plan. Joined by Dr. Faraz Khalid, a health policy expert from McMaster University in Hamilton, who wrote a piece at theconversation.com recently called How to Build a Better Canada After COVID-19, Make Telehealth the Primary Way We Deliver Healthcare. And Dr. Khalid, before, just before we were going to the news break, you were looking at the Australian model of how they've optimized a well-established telehealth system, uh, and it really has proven to be enormously beneficial and useful during the COVID-19 crisis in Australia. You've also identified four key reasons why telehealth should become the primary way we deliver healthcare in Canada as well. Can you go through that list for us, please? Absolutely. So one of the big reasons is always patients first. So uh, access to care. We want to make sure that patients get timely, appropriate, uh, uh, and, and adequate access to healthcare services in the comfort of their own home. I think there is no reason to have an 80-year-old uh, wait in a waiting room anymore to get a renewal on their uh, uh, hypertension prescription next to a patient who has the flu. Sure. I think now with telehealth, we're seeing that People are, can get the care they need in their own home, in the comfort of their own bed or whatever the case they are, if they're an employee and they're at work, it will increase our economy. So access to care is the most important reason. But second, we're seeing that it's actually a much more efficient way of delivering uh, clinical practice. And for a reason for that is that patients now, uh, sorry, physicians now can see more than one patient with a click of a button. So mm-hmm. they're not wasting the time to go from one room to another. Um, it sort of makes a much more streamlined process and reduces the effort both on the physician and the patient and has a very good positive impact from all the research on making sure that we reduce clinicians' travel time and transition time between patients. And thirdly, it allows us for more evidence-based decision-making because as telehealth is more scaled up, we'll, we will notice that more of our health data will be available online. And so we can see specialists in a much more faster and efficient manner. And it will ensure physicians can access the best evidence to assess and diagnose and treat patients on the spot. So they can access your records. They can look up the most relevant up-to-date research evidence on how to treat your condition, uh, which will allow for a lot more emphasis on supporting evidence and decision-making. Okay. And lastly, I think that it saves a lot of money. I mean, we know from all the evidence that we've looked at for the past more than 20 years is that telehealth does actually save the system money. How? Well, one, it decreases hospitalizations in Canada. And we know that when we go to the hospital and we stay in the hospital, it actually costs our system a lot of money sure. to just be an inpatient. So being able to be treated at home does reduce that, but it also is good for the economy overall because it will ensure that our employees don't have to take six days to go see the family physician, that many of them now will be able to access them from the comfort of their own offices, for example, when the time comes that we're back into office settings.
Interesting stuff. Now, just uh, picking up on a couple of the items that you identified in that uh, list of uh, reasons to uh, that we should uh, go to telehealth. Uh, for example, you talked about the length of time the doctor's visit lasts. Typically, if we're lucky, uh, we when we go visit the doctor, we get about 15 minutes. That's probably a typical visitor patient experience these days. Wouldn't you agree uh, in terms of the time your physician has physically to be with you in the examination room? I find a lot of that time chewed up by the doctor sitting at a computer terminal, filling in information rather than looking at me and uh, talking to me about what my issues are. But then that's just, I suppose, the doc trying desperately to keep up with technology. But might it extend the length of the visit should it prove to be necessary? Absolutely. So when we're already seeing that, so he, in, the, in, in Ontario, we saw that during COVID-19, uh, physicians were either offering 20 minutes to 30 minutes. There were still 15 minute slots, but they were actually extending the time. And it was actually, it, it, was, it proved to be a very useful thing because like you stated now, patients appreciated the longer duration with their family doctor. Mm-hmm. So, uh, there were comments being made uh, here in, the, in Ontario about, oh, now I get to see my doctor for 30 minutes. And, and they do stay for 30 minutes. I've just set out myself, I've injured my ankle. And my family physician was on the call for 30 minutes. But it is also very equally important to say that we're not trying to suggest here that telehealth will replace completely face-to-face. Of course. And there are times when the doctor does need to see you. He will need to, he or she will need to conduct a physical exam on you and you will have to go in. But for the majority of cases, they can be resolved to telehealth. And it also provides basically a triage system, doesn't it? If you have an issue, some kind of medical issue that is disturbing, and you think, maybe I should, I should see a doctor about this. I just don't know what's going on. So you arrange first a virtual visit, and you have that conversation with your physician and explain how you feel and what's bugging you. And the doc may very well say, well, you should probably come in and we should have a, a look at what your problem is. Or they may be able to diagnose virtually. But still, the first visit, would you recommend being virtual? Unless, of course, it's a, an emergency uh, involving surgery or something like that. Absolutely. I injured my ankle playing tennis <laughs> uh, and uh, I was able to speak to my family physician. She actually did a video consultation and it was about 30 minutes. And she, her advice at the end was, I really would like you to get an x-ray. Let's, I'm going to email you the, the prescription and everything that you need. Please go to the nearest ER and get an x-ray. Okay. And the whole process only took me 32 minutes from the time I left my house. So I went to the emergency room, got the extra, came home. So my point is that it does streamline. It allows that triage process to happen, uh, that if the physician feels like uh, they need you to go get an extra or for further examinations or labs, they can do that in a much streamlined process where we're skipping a lot of steps that used to be in in the system before by telehealth. Interesting. Now, Dr. Khaled, one of uh, one area of the, the Canadian system that a lot of uh, users see as a weakness is the ability of the family physician or local doctor to connect an individual with a needed specialist. Mm-hmm. Uh, frequently, those lists can, here in British Columbia, for example, uh, and I'm talking now knees and hips, the, 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 the standard stuff, you're looking at probably 16 to 18 
18 months before you're going to get that surgery, uh, probably six to eight months before you'll even see your surgeon. So uh, will telehealth and, and more of us gravitating towards it and making use of it, thereby making it even more efficient, will that, might that provide faster access to those specialists? Yes, because the evidence has shown us when we look at international comparisons across the world that the countries that have been able to scale up and really utilize telehealth effectively, they've been able to reduce the uh, referral time from a family doctor to a specialist. And it makes sense because when you have that system in place, eventually what that does is that it increases efficiency across the system. It increases physician-to-patient time. It increases the, the time that we can transfer files between uh, the family doctor and specialist. Overall, over time also, you will see that that time of where we referral time will be reduced by at least half. Interesting stuff. You might uh, take some comfort in this, uh, Dr. Khaled. On my way into the radio station this morning, just listening along, I heard a commercial for a telehealth company. Uh, they came on and, and a, a doctor w- with what appeared to be a South African accent came on and said, and just talked about the system and how uh, fast access and this, that, and the other thing. So now uh, clearly you have networks of physicians recognizing, A, how how efficient this, this uh, telehealth has become, especially during a COVID-19 type pandemic when it, it, it had better work or we have have a really uh, we have a real problem on our hands but now they're starting to see this to the point where it becomes a business model going forward are you encouraged by that absolutely and we've seen actually a lot of family physicians who never used telehealth and used it during COVID-19 to not return back uh, to, to regular practice as it was before because they saw the benefits of it and they realized actually, this might be a better sustainable model. Mm -hmm. Here in Ontario, in the province, we're seeing practices not looking to go back to uh, the way operations were before, but actually scaling up the telehealth and continuing those efforts. Interesting stuff. Well, it's uh, uh, certainly an idea and a technology whose time has arrived, and we have an abundance of evidence of it coast to coast to coast with COVID-19 right here in Canada. Dr. Faraz Khalid, uh, great to have you on the program, sir. We really appreciated your article in the conversation, and you're taking the time to share it with us here in Vancouver this morning. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much. Have a great weekend. You too. Dr. Faraz Khalid, health policy expert from McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario this morning. The other day, just a couple of days ago, in the Globe and Mail, veteran Vancouver writer Francis Beulah penned a piece called Could Ugly Broadway Become a Great Street? I read the piece and thought, wow, it's a really good question and an enormous challenge. Wonder who could talk to us about that. And of course, it has to be Michael Geller, renowned architect and planner, uh, consultant extraordinaire, and always a welcome visitor to this program. Michael, good morning. Good morning, Sterling. So, not, ugly, By the way, not everybody agrees with that assessment. I, you know that. I, I know that. So that's what I was going to start with. I mean, let's let's just take Francis's thing apart right from the headline and, and, and work it down. It was a nice piece, by the way, well-researched, and of course she knows what she's talking about, and drew drew some interesting comparisons to Camby Street and what happened to that during the Canada Line construction before the 2010 Olympics. But let's start with ugly Broadway. Do you agree that 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 term applies? Certainly to many parts of it. In fact, those people 
who are familiar with Broadway know that it goes through a number of different neighborhoods and it takes on different characters. So, for instance, when Broadway runs through Kit Solano, it actually does feel, as Francis points out, quite nice. You know, there's a sense of like a village high street, shops along the street, mm-hmm. a lot of what we say pedestrian interest at grade. But then there's other sections, which it really is just a utilitarian transit and vehicular corridor. And it's not particularly pleasant to walk along. And so the question is, what makes it a comfortable place to be? And can you transform those less attractive parts to make them more attractive? And I think you can. Okay, well, let's talk about probably one of the ugliest spots along Broadway is that messy intersection where Broadway and Maine and Kingsway all sort of mush together. Uh, and and it really is just, it's a, it's a traffic uh, spaghetti junction, really, Michael, and there's nothing aesthetically pleasing about any of it. And there is a, a major new condominium development, some people know it as the independent, that was built there. That's right. And there's no doubt that one of the things the architects attempted to do was to create the street level of that building into a more attractive place. And if, if uh, your listeners are going by that area today or tomorrow, take a look at what things did they try to do? They used different brickwork to try and make it feel a bit more broken up and so forth. But unfortunately, I think most people would say that is still, as you describe it, and not a particularly attractive section of the street. Now, Michael, is that likely to be transformed simply out of necessity? Because SkyTrain is going to go right, zipping right through that intersection in the days and weeks and years ahead. So out of necessity, a transformation of some description will take place. Absolutely, because one of the things that the SkyTrain will do is take a lot of those buses that currently use Broadway as a major transit corridor, it'll take those buses off the street. Right. And as soon as you do that, then all kinds of opportunities arise. And, you know, I often think, what makes a great street? And as we travel around to other cities, oftentimes it's things like wider sidewalks or planting along the sidewalks, or, you know, hanging baskets and banners and things like that. Um, And that makes a big difference. Also, the design of the shops. Uh, You know, I think many people like going to shopping malls more than they like going to some streets, because if you go to the shopping mall, every shop has a different facade, Mm -hmm. a different character. And yet too many developers and architects, when they put up new shops, at the base of a high-rise building, it's the same stainless steel, metal, and glass canopy that soon gets dirty with leaves. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you can recreate some of that nice feeling that you do see in old village centers, um, I think that something that people appreciate. Now, Broadway at this point is six lanes wide, three in each direction, sometimes uh, with left turn lanes tossed in for good measure at lights. Uh, Is it important going forward to maintain three lanes of traffic in each direction uh, as it is now? Or can traffic, again, out of necessity, perhaps with the SkyTrain being the primary reason, be reduced to one lane less? Well, before we discuss whether it could be one lane less, let's point out that in those areas where Broadway feels a little bit nicer, there's six lanes, 
but it's only about, it's under 60 feet wide. Yeah. So those lanes are less than 10 feet wide each. Mm-hmm. In other parts of the street, those lanes are over 12 feet wide. And one of the interesting things that's going to happen, not in my lifetime because I'm getting old, but it'll happen in yours, Sterling, <laughs> is that as we see more, believe it or not, autonomous cars, self-driving cars, over time, that's going to allow a narrowing of the car lane mm-hmm. because cars are generally about six feet wide, buses around 10 feet wide, but it'll become possible to narrow the lane. So the first thing I think you will see is, is a narrowing of the lanes. And then the question will come up, do we need parking? Do we need uh, the bus dedicated lanes and so forth? And over time, we may well find that we can reduce the number of lanes and widen the sidewalks, add a bicycle lane. And we are seeing that happen, of course, in many other parts of, uh, of Metro Vancouver. It's interesting, Michael, isn't it? Because you're not really adjusting too much in terms of the actual width of the street. But by tinkering with the widths of the lanes and the sidewalk, it seems an, an odd adjective to apply. But I think in many ways, you're going for a sense of some kind of intimacy, that is difficult to achieve on an urban street in the middle of a big city. But that's what you're going for, aren't you? That's right. And the other thing that can contribute to that is when the sidewalks are wider, and then you start to have activities along the sidewalks. You know, those people who go to New York and other cities often notice that you have street vendors and some of them may be illegal, but many of them are licensed to be there. Um, I often uh, use a photograph I took in Santiago, Chile, where they had shoe shine uh, stands along the street and, uh, you know, vendors on the street mm-hmm. and kiosks. And I think over time, we're going to see more and more of that in Vancouver. I'm in conversation with architect Michael Geller, who is also, by the way, uh, a junk professor at the Simon Fraser Center rather, for Sustainable Development, Resource and Environmental Management. A busy guy, and we're talking now about the future of Broadway and referencing an article written by Francis Bula in the Globe and Mail a few days ago entitled, Could Ugly Broadway Become a Great Street? Were that to happen, Michael, were uh, what Francis calls Ugly Broadway, and some agree, uh, how, what, what What's the guiding principle, the overriding, got to do it this way, uh, that, that would make that great street possible? I think if I had to simplify it, it would be to say, make it a street for people rather than a street for vehicles. Now, that's an oversimplification, but certainly in the past, we've often thought more about accommodating the vehicular traffic and the transit and not necessarily trying to focus on the pedestrian. Mm -hmm. And the more we think about the pedestrian, whether it's the pedestrian walking along the sidewalks or crossing the street, then you begin to change your attitude. And before I leave you, I hope we can also point out that while this is a discussion about Broadway, Mm -hmm. many of the things we're talking about equally apply to major streets throughout the region. And indeed, I would invite your listeners to write to their municipal engineers and planners to say, hey, 
why can't we do more about Kingsway? Sure. Or why can't we do more about some of the streets in, in, in Richmond and in, uh, and in Surrey and Coquitlam that aren't as attractive? Although I have to point out that I actually do uh, commend Richmond for making a real effort. I, I drive along Gilbert and Number 2 Road a lot, and they really do go out of their way to beautify those streets. Mm-hmm. Uh, they add central landscape mediums, trees down the middle of the street. You, you mentioned that point about the intimacy. As soon as you have trees and planters, Sterling, that changes, the just as it changes the feeling of a garden, it changes the feeling of a street. No question about it. Uh, Michael, my, my favorite memories of Broadway are Greek days. Uh, on, on the west side of Broadway, they shut it down to traffic. Hordes of people show up, but it's at that n- narrower part of Broadway on the west side. And it's just, an, it has been in previous years, a, a massive fun event with terrific food and music and, and culture. And just, again, large groups of people having fun together uh, and enjoying the ambiance of the street. And that's that. those are my memories of Broadway. And that's why I would like to see it become a great street uh, and longer than just those few blocks during a few days in the summertime, but it does have that potential. Got to balance that, though, Michael, against one other major concern, referencing the Canada line and what happened to Camby Street in 08 and 09 prior to the to finish. A lot of businesses lost a lot of customers, and some businesses went under it because of the inability of their customers to park anywhere near their location, and thus you their services. Is that a real possibility as well on West Broadway? I think it depends in large part on the method used to construct the SkyTrain. We call it a SkyTrain, but in fact, it's generally going to be underground yeah. in these areas. Mm-hmm. It's a subway. I mean, the, the issue is, do you build, create a big trench and then put the tracks and everything, the walls in that way, or do you bore underground and if you're boring then you there will be much less disruption during construction at street level and i think that's the discussion that's taking place but you're absolutely right if you're going to do what they did on canby street it's going to be very very difficult for many of those merchants to survive during the construction and, uh, I mean, we know that uh, Canby Street had some real casualties. But I think the intention here is to, to look at boring. It's a bit more expensive, but it's far less uh, disruptive. Interesting. And so going forward, we're, let's just assume that they go with that uh, slightly more expensive but considerably less disruptive approach. Then that allows them to really focus on what's going on on top on, on the street. Are there plans are you are aware of, Michael, as part of the SkyTrain extension to the west side, to specifically and funds set aside specifically to address dressing up Broadway? Oh, very much so. And indeed, Frances did address this in her column because she spoke to the engineers. Now, I have to point out that there used to be a time when we all, uh, those of us who were architects and planners and even developers, we liked dealing with the planners and we hated dealing with the engineers because all the engineers worried about was sort of efficiency and (laughs) things like that. There's no doubt that the planners, the engineers at the city of Vancouver are becoming much more like planners. And indeed, she quotes a number of the 
uh, engineers pointing out how they are looking at narrowing lane widths, widening sidewalks, beautifying the roads. And, uh, you know, it, it does take a difference in attitude, but eventually I think we, we can succeed. And uh, one of my big concerns is, especially in Vancouver, is there's just not enough greenery in the city. Right. Um, I don't know if you ever remember what happened at the south end of the Burrard Street Bridge, but when they did the major renovation of the street, they started to put in a planter uh, down the middle, um, and then, but it never got planted, and then the weeds grew, and then they eventually pulled out the weeds, and they made a bit of an effort, but they didn't do enough. Now it's just paved over. Sure. That was a wonderful opportunity to have had some greenery because one of the benefits of greenery along streets is it makes a healthier street. And, uh, you know, there's been a number of studies, Sterling, that show that in countries like China and Japan, where they actually sometimes plant hedges along major commercial streets, they absorb some of the pollutants in a way that even trees can't absorb and it results in a healthier environment. And uh, I think that's another thing that we're going to start paying more attention to. Yeah, I agree. And uh, again, uh, strangely, in, in the middle of a, a big old uh, paved over urban type environment, uh, a, a tree, a, an oasis of calm and green, uh, it does make a big difference. And it does add to that elusive sense of intimacy very quickly, too, doesn't it, Michael? It does. And uh I've just been watching the transformation of Gilbert in Richmond, where they have now, over the course of the last couple of months, uh, torn up the center of the street. I think they were probably putting in some new sewers and water mains, but they've now planted a whole row of uh, poplar trees. So they're very tall and they're very thin, but I mean, it's fantastic. And, uh, I, I've often tried to uh, encourage some of the Vancouver uh, engineers and politicians to think more about planting. And yes, there's a cost to maintain it and so forth. Although sometimes you can do it in a way that even the adjacent property owners will, will take some responsibility for weeding the planters or looking after things. Yeah, but it transforms a place uh, very, very quickly, as you say. Yeah, and, and, and it doesn't take a lot of energy from, from locals uh, supporting the project to, to keep it looking good, too. Uh, Michael, I, I wonder how optimistic you are that they're going to get it right. Well, I am optimistic that they will get it right, but it's going to take a long time because the construction of this uh, subway is going to take a few years. Mm -hmm. But they they will... One of the interesting uh, side effects of this terrible pandemic is that it has changed people's attitudes towards streets. And we have seen all over the world this notion of uh, sidewalks getting a bit wider, uh, patios, restaurant patios. I mean, there's many examples now, even in Vancouver, sure. where they're removing parking spaces and putting in restaurant patios. And I think that that's a trend that's going to continue. And, uh, you know, there's a few areas where, where I frequent where the city took out a driving lane and I thought, oh, my God, you know, to create a bicycle lane. But they took out a whole driving lane. King Edward comes to mind. But somehow the traffic does manage and uh, you, you take different routes perhaps sometimes or you slow down a little bit. But it does work. And I think that that's, this is a trend that we're starting to see more of in North America. Well, and I hope you're right. Like, 
it's, it's making American streets and Canadian streets more like European streets. Michael Geller, always a pleasure, sir. Thanks for getting up early to do this. It's just a delight to have you with us. Our guest from Surrey City Hall is Councillor Linda Annis, who says the only business keeping bankers' hours these days in her municipality is City Hall, and figures, well, that's got to change if Surrey is going to better serve its residents and taxpayers, not only during, but post-COVID-19. Linda Annis, good morning. Good morning, Sterling. So tell us a little bit more about bankers' hours and the need for, shall we say, more flexibility. Well, oftentimes people are trying to do renovations on their houses or, or you know, small businesses are doing renovations. And for them to connect with City Hall, they're required right now to either try to navigate themselves through our website, which is quite complicated, mm-hmm. or make a visit to City Hall. And if they're coming to City Hall, they must come between 8.30 and 4.30. And then they may get there just before 4.30 and not be able to see anyone. And to me, this just isn't you know, customer-focused. We need to be focusing on the residents of Surrey and working within their hours so they're not having to take time off work to try to come to City Hall and make multiple trips uh, for sometimes uh, to no avail. Sure. So that would mean also, though, extending office hours, uh, perhaps into the early evening, perhaps on the weekends, and that would mean paying city staff more, perhaps even time and a half. Those sorts of cost realities also get factored into the equation, Linda. So what is staff, what are the employees saying about this need for flexibility? Well, I think that's... That's not necessarily so, because you can stagger the hours that staff uh, start and complete their day. Okay. So, yes, absolutely. Uh, we probably do need to be hiring more staff in Surrey. We have uh, between 12,000 and 15,000 people moving here each year, uh, and building is uh, booming in Surrey, and people are interested in doing renovations to their homes and new businesses. We've got lots of new businesses moving here, and mm-hmm. they're needing to do leasehold improvements, so they need ready access to City Hall. How about uh, the whole perp- the process, because City Hall, any City Hall, not picking on you, Linda, but any City Hall is notorious, notoriously a black hole for projects. You need to get something done. You have to have approvals. Various stages of any project needs to be approved and signed off and so forth. And even just getting the green light in the first place at some City Halls can be tortuous experience. So how do you think Surrey stacks up against Vancouver? or Coquitlam or North Van or whatever in terms of just being able to service the fundamentals of keeping the wheels turning? Well, we uh, this past year, we had about 38,000 visits to City Hall seeking some sort of permits. That's a lot of people to process through 8.30 to 4.30. Mm-hmm. Now, I think what we need to be doing is making City Hall much more customer-focused. We need to be doing some business forums so that people can understand how to navigate their way through City Hall, what, what you have to do to prepare to do a renovation in your home or to do a leasehold improvement or, or build a home. Uh, the larger developers, you know, it's easier for them because they deal with City Hall on a regular basis. Exactly. People that it's one off, it, it can be very difficult. So we need to provide good education and we need to make our online services very customer friendly as well because oftentimes you don't necessarily need to see somebody but you come into city hall because you don't understand how to navigate through the website are you getting complaints to that effect that you know i'd really i really would rather do all of this online thank you but your website is making me crazy 
Well, and it's been interesting since, uh, you know, we've had the pandemic and City Hall right now is, is closed by appointment only. So many people are trying to do it and they do find it very confusing. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes it's extremely frustrating if you take time off work to come to City Hall and then you find out, oh, I don't have the right paperwork or it's now 4.15 and the queue's too long. So, you know, I, I can't see somebody today. Those things are all very problematic to me and we need to make we need to remember who pays our salaries and that of course is the residents of Surrey and we need to make it very focused for them so it's easy to navigate your way through City Hall. Interesting stuff. Uh, can I change gears on a, on a couple of things also on my mind on a Saturday morning, Linda? Um, not your favorite human being in the whole world, but the mayor has had some health issues lately that caused him to need to take a few days off. He says he's going to be back next week. What do you know? Well, I'm wishing him well. You know, I don't know any of the specifics of his illness, uh, but I I wish him well, and I hope um, that we'll see him on Monday. You know, it's very unfortunate when any anybody gets sick, and particularly, you know, someone in his in his shoes. You know, being a mayor of a large city in Surrey. Uh, it can be very trying, and, you know, I just hope that he comes back uh, soon and in good health. Uh, what's the latest on the uh, police board? Now, we there was some confusion. It was interesting. Uh, one of the uh, local papers, the Surrey Leader, uh, published an editorial a while back uh, advocating perhaps that a few municipal councillors be appointed to the police board and then had to do a little homework and find out that that's not actually allowed to happen. Uh, and so they have appointed a police board with the mayor, of course, uh, as the, the council if you will, representative on the police board. What's the feedback? It's been appointed now. The announcement was made about 10 days ago now, Linda. What's the feedback in terms of the composition of the police board? Well, I think people in Syria are still very, very upset that we're moving forward with this. Uh, I'm seeing more and more lawn signs out, keep the RCMP in Surrey. There's literally thousands of them out there. More than 45,000 people have signed a petition saying that they want to keep the RCMP. Nobody in Surrey is happy, and particularly they're not happy in that the provincial government isn't listening to what the residents are asking for, and that is to do a referendum. If we were to do a referendum, I think that would be best for all because it settles, you know, the matter once and for all, and if indeed, um, it is that uh, the referendum says that we should move forward with a Surrey Police Board, so be it. I don't personally think that that's the right thing, but at least um, the referendum would call it once and for all. Yeah, of course, for, from the provincial government's standpoint, though, to be fair, and they're not my favorite people in the world, but to be fair, they were presented with a request for a municipal police force from a city council who had been duly elected recently and unanimously passed a motion to go forward with the municipal municipal police force transferring away from the RCMP. The provincial government took the city and its council at its word and said, okay, we'll go, we'll go study this, and then came back and said, okay, off you go. So from their point of view, it's a done deal. And, and I would disagree with you on that. Uh, certainly, there was a unanimous uh, uh, vote that we look at uh, transitioning to a Surrey Police Department, but that wasn't with an open checkbook. There was no plan in place, and the plan that was presented to the province is not a good policing plan. It's calling for less police officers with uh, transition costs, and these are transition costs only, of about $129.6 million, and that, quite frankly, is on... Uh, the conservative side, that will cost everybody in the city of Surrey somewhere between 250 and $300 per person. 
uh, for transition alone, and the and the actual cost of having the police force is going to be significantly higher as well for less police officers. Nobody can tell me that that's a good plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, on to, on the matter of the referendum that you've raised, Linda, what is the appetite as you understand it from the province? What does Victoria have to say about yet another go-round about this? The province isn't listening to what the residents of Surrey are asking for, and the residents of Surrey and not just me have been asking for this for a long, long time. And I think it's absolutely critical that they get on with it and settle this issue once and for all. It's a very divisive issue in Surrey. And a recent survey had more than 80% of the people in Surrey saying they want to keep the RCMP. That in itself should speak volumes to the province. Interesting stuff. Well, it's far from a done deal in terms of the conversation and the strong feelings on both sides of the issue. Linda Annis, thanks for this. We appreciate the opportunity to have a go at you uh, early on a Saturday morning and take a look at the latest from Surrey City Hall. We appreciate it. My pleasure, Sterling. Anytime. There's Councillor Linda Annis from Surrey. A wonderful collection of century-old photographs of Canada's Rocky Mountains shows those rugged symbols of permanence are, well, as changeable as anything else. In fact, they're, some cases, changing rather significantly, says our next guest. It's a pleasure to welcome Andrew Trent to the program. Mr. Trent is a professor at the University of Waterloo in the School of Environment, Resources, and Sustainability and has written extensively about the Mountain Legacy Project. Andrew, welcome. Oh, hi. Thanks for having me on. How are you? It's a pleasure to have you with us, Professor Trent. And uh, it's I'm doing well, and I'm very intrigued by these uh, this story about photographs. So let's start at square one. Let's start at when we first started taking pictures of the Rocky Mountains. So and documenting them, archiving them. How far back are we going now? Well, we have to go pretty far back. So this is late 1800s, early 1900s, when there were uh, teams of people out mapping the Rocky Mountains. So they were doing that uh, with photography. So they would go to these mountain tops and set up uh, permanent stations and take photographs, really high resolution, um, wonderful photographs in kind of north, south, east, west. So there are a lot of mountain tops. And so this collection is huge. So there's over 120 thousands of these images and they're they're preserved like the way they're taken they're on glass plate negatives so they're really high resolution images of a time period where we just don't really have very many images of of landscapes in general but especially mountainous areas interesting stuff and these were all done by the geological survey of canada so there was funding for the uh, at, at its time the very cutting edge equipment they were able to use Exactly. And because they were using such high quality equipment, um, the resolution is, is in some ways comparable to what we're doing today with really good cameras so that we can use these old images as, as a benchmark and then go back. And so a team that I'm only a little piece of, but has been working since the late 90s, out of, uh, mostly out of the University of Victoria, led by Dr. Eric Higgs. And they've been going out and going to these exact same locations mm-hmm. and recapturing these 
images of the mountains and then comparing the before and after to look at how much these these systems have changed. Well, and then I'm quoting you here because uh, in some cases uh, changing quite significantly, quote unquote, attributed to you. So let's talk about, uh, let's say that some of these pictures were taken in the late 1880s. So we're talking now about 130 years or so ago. Uh, And so that's a significant enough period of time to note change. Let's talk about the types of changes you and your team have been able to observe. Yeah, and that is a, it's a really long time ago. Um, it's kind of, it's a, it's a goldmine for an ecologist to stumble upon a data set like this. It's just, it's incredible. I'll bet. So the kind of change that we're seeing, um, we were looking at high elevation change. So we were looking at change in the alpine area and change in that upper extent of where trees grow. And so what we're seeing, it's, There's some patchiness, and there always is in science, but it's a pretty clear signal of trees growing higher up the mountains. Um, And this is happening from the southern extent of the Canadian Rockies up north. And we're also seeing, so the trees are growing higher, but we're also seeing more individual trees at that that edge. So in that alpine forest kind of ecotone area, we're seeing it's moving up, then there are more trees. And something else that's really neat, too, is that there's, if you've spent time up in the Alpine or any of your listeners have, um, there's a, a type of tree that we call a Krumholtz. Uh, other people call it scrub. Depending on where you are in Canada, they call it something different. Mm-hmm. But there are these low, low creeping trees that are growing at the edges of where trees can grow. So they get battered by the wind, by the ice in the winter, by, by the snow. Everything about life stinks if you're a Krumholtz. And what we're noticing is that in the old images, um, individual trees that are growing in this growth form called Krumholtz, kind of like shrubby, uh-huh. um, in the modern images, there are a good number of them that are growing more like trees. So they've changed their growth form from that creeping, crawling, barely alive, kind of hanging on to something that looks more like a proper tree. Interesting. So now there's three examples you've given us here just in the last uh, two minutes. And the, talking about the, the, the gnarled old crumb holes looking a lot more like trees, uh, the more uh, a denser number of trees, and also trees growing at higher elevations. So there are three enormous clues. What do they suggest to you by way of drawing conclusions? Well, we started this project um, thinking about climate change and patterns across the world. Are like, We're looking at all these different systems and we're seeing trees are growing further north and they're also growing further um, higher in elevation. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what triggered this idea to be like, well, we've got this incredible data set that spans 100 plus years. Um, let's see what we're seeing in the Rockies. And so the idea is that that position of tree line, of that, that, that limit of where trees grow, the idea is that it's controlled um, in part by temperature. So it's, that's what's constraining where it ends. And so if we know that things are warming, then the, our, the idea is that, well, as that constraint lifts, then trees can grow higher in elevation. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that is the, the hypothesis that we're working with. There, there have been a few other changes over this 100-year period. It's been a pretty significant time. Um, one is that we've left a landscape that was under mostly Indigenous stewardship in the late 1800s. So those, the early photographs looking out across these valleys and these mountains, the type of management that was happening in this, in this system was really different from as we move into the 20th century when where things like fire, we've been really focusing on fire suppression. 
So some of the disturbance regimes have also shifted. But in these in these high elevation areas, we're we're really looking at climate change as the as the driver of the differences that we're seeing. Well, I'm curious as to how you see them, Andrew, because, again, with the, the, the clues that you've given us with the denser concentration of trees now also growing at higher elevations and some of these scrubby old stuff looking actually a lot more tree like in recent years, uh, they don't seem to add up to a negative from where I'm sitting. But I'm not the scientist in this conversation. Do you view these uh, clues? Uh, as negative or positive or just evidence? Well, you're, you're not a scientist in this, and you're not a grizzly bear, <laughs> as, far as, I, as far as I know. So it's true. So in some cases, you might think of, well, we're having increased carbon sequestration, so we're pulling more carbon from the atmosphere as we grow more trees. So that's potentially a good thing. But the real the consequence here is that as trees are moving up the mountains, the amount of alpine area is shrinking because there's nowhere else for it to go. So it can't keep going up the mountain because it's already at the top. Right. And so we're seeing a shrinking of that, of that alpine tundra habitat. And if you're a grizzly bear, that's a really big deal because a lot of denning happens in this high elevation region. If you're a caribou, um, a lot of winter activity happens in this high elevation area. There's a number of endangered species, uh, animals and plants that, that really depend on this area, one of our the other co-authors on this paper, Dr. Brian Starzomsky, that's kind of his thing is looking at where biodiversity is across uh, BC and why it's why it's there and how we can understand those patterns. So he's been really interested in understanding what this loss of alpine area means as we as we move forward one of the favorite my favorite reactions and it happens every time i go there andrew and i've spent a lot of time over the years in the rockies is the sense of place it affords a human being boy are you ever tiny (laughs) boy do you ever not matter when you're surrounded by that kind of majesty and grandeur Uh, it really does provide at least for me a sense of oh okay now i get it now i know where i fit in uh it that's always going to be there isn't it it is always going to be there. And these these changes, and we can talk about them as rapid changes to ecosystems and landscapes, but in some ways in our lifetime, it, it happens right in front of our eyes and it's happening kind of slowly. So we'll get used to it and we won't see that dramatic shift overnight. It's something that happens over years and over decades. And there's a lot of the Rockies that are really just rock. Mm-hmm, and sure. those, those, those landscapes don't change very much because you need you need soil for plants to, to, for seeds to land and germinate and become trees and, and other Arctic uh, alpine plants. And so a lot of the Rockies will stay the same, but in areas where plants and trees can move around and grow, then yeah, there, w- there will be some pretty big changes. Interesting stuff. Pretty big changes. We appreciate this, Andrew Trent. Uh, good to talk to you this morning and a uh, very interesting take on what we see next time we look at the Rocky Mountains and I can hardly wait for another look. Thanks very much for this. Have a great day. You too. Thank you. There's Andrew Trent from the University of Waterloo. So think about that next time you're out there looking at those gorgeous, huge mountains. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. 
<laughs> For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.